and welcome to episode 910 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindberg of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo. Doing an email show today. Anything you'd like to discuss before we do? Nope. All right. I think maybe Stephen Wright has taken over the crown as most gifable pitcher. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's I just... I don't ever believe they're real when I yeah, when it's people incredible. Right. They they don't they look photoshopped. Right. There was the one about a month ago or a few weeks ago where he got Chris Davis to whiff and it really, really looked like the pitch went in two different directions on its way to the plate. And then there was just this recent one I saw on Reddit that is the ball does not complete a revolution on its way to the plate. It doesn't even really seem to come close, and yet he gets a swinging strike, and it's so much fun to watch. And yet he gets a swinging strike? Well, yeah, I guess that that's why he and gets a thusly, swinging strike. And <laughs> thusly, yeah, yes. Um, right. <laughs> do you, um, does it actually, is there anything illusory in that? Is there is there anything at all that's just a, a trick of the eye? Uh, or is it actually changing directions more than once? I don't think it can. This is something that Alan Nathan would, would know about and probably has written about because he's written a ton about knuckleballs. So maybe you can Google and find something about whether it changes direction on the way of the plate. I'm pretty sure I've seen him do something on that topic. The thing with the knuckleball is that its location is completely unpredictable like you know you, the pitcher aims for some part of the strike zone and then the movement is just sort of random and even he doesn't know where it will go around that sort of central point that he's aiming for i'm not sure if it actually can change directions on the way of the plate do you see anything well the, as you know the problem with uh, with trying to read alan nathan while somebody is talking <laughs> is that alan nathan it shows his work and so yes. it's not that skimmable sometimes you read the footnotes yeah exactly it's very academic very informative this might not answer it i don't even know i haven't even gotten to the end of it but this is a in a description of an ra dicky pitch the first change of slope occurs at 0.1 seconds the ball doesn't actually move to the right rather it continues to move to the left but at a reduced speed of about 1.2 feet per second the second change of slope occurs at about 0.3 seconds, increasing to about 3.6 feet per second. Didn't answer anything. <laughs> Sorry. Ben, I'm, I'll tell you this. There's yeah. definitely an answer here. It is, uh, I believe it is in a different article uh, that he presented at the ninth conference of the International Sports Engineering Association, 2012. An analysis of knuckleball trajectories is presented using data from the PitchFX video tracking system for pitches thrown in actual major league games. The data reveal that, contrary to popular belief, Knuckleball trajectories are as smooth as those from normal pitches. However, right. the data also show that the deflection of a knuckleball from a straight line trajectory is essentially random in both magnitude and direction. Right. There's actually a, a BP article about this okay. that uh, was one of the things he wrote for the guest series. It's I'll link to it in the usual places, but okay. I think it comes to the same conclusion. So there's maybe something deceptive about the knuckleball mystique which is the title of his article for baseball perspectives on that topic but what are we seeing in that <laughs> in that gif if not a baseball changing direction well here's the last paragraph from alan's piece after he concludes that the flutter in a knuckleball is on the order of a few tenths of an inch at most 
He says this appears to contradict the popular belief that knuckleball trajectories are erratic and often experience abrupt changes of direction. Let me speculate that this belief is the result of the randomness of movement, both in magnitude and direction, giving rise to the perception of erratic behavior. We've all seen instances where the catcher and pitcher get their signals crossed and the catcher has to lunge for the ball at the last moment. The catcher expects a certain movement and the pitcher throws something with different movement. With the knuckleball, no one really knows what movement to expect, so it is not surprising that the catcher has some difficulty cleanly catching the ball and that the batter has even more difficulty hitting it. There are other instances where claims based on perception have been shown to be unsupported by the data, such as late break and the rising fastball. I don't doubt the perception, but I prefer to rely on scientific evidence when it comes to reality. But if it's just a perception, it's a very strong one. We'll do some further research. Yeah. It's a complicated subject. Let's plan on this. Let's plan on doing an episode on Stephen Wright's knuckleball. And maybe yeah. maybe Dr. Nathan will be on, but maybe he won't. Either way, we will have studied the issue a little bit better than this. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about it because Stephen Wright is worth an episode. Yeah, definitely. And the really cool just less than one minute takeaway is that he just gets tons of swings in locations where most guys don't get tons of swings. Uh, Jeff Sullivan pointed this out in a post recently that he has the lowest rate of contact inside the zone. So it's, you know, a bunch of aces. It's like the top five are Jose Fernandez, Clayton Kershaw, Max Scherzer, David Price, and then at the very top of the leaderboard with some separation between him and Price is Stephen Wright. So he just gets guys to swing through pitches in the strike zone because they do these really weird things, and it's fun to make gifts of them. So Stephen Wright, he's good. I'm glad there's a good knuckleballer in baseball again. I guess Stephen Wright is making me a little happy. I had fallen out of any affection for the knuckleball, and uh-huh. I wish it. W- I actually wish it would go away. <laughs> I either w- look if there were. I would like. To, I would watch a league of knuckleballs. I feel really weird about there being one at any given time. Oh, I completely disagree. Yeah. I wouldn't want to watch a league of knuckleballs, but I love that there's always one. Yeah, I, I'll, you know, like a knuckleball. Uh, my opinion on this sometimes veers wildly for no particular reason, and tomorrow <laughs> I might be back on Team Knuckleball. But yeah. I don't know. It's I guess the, it's always hard to to decide how you feel about a gimmick, and uh, sometimes I like a gimmick if it seems strategic. Sometimes I don't like a gimmick if it feels silly. And more than anything else, I just don't like watching a knuckleballer pitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so because of that, I think I've uh, grown to not really like knuckleballers. But that's a fairly, like, I'm sure that there's an episode. This is fairly recent because I'm sure there's an episode where I said the exact opposite uh, long <laughs> ago. And it might just be that for a long time there uh, wasn't, there was only R.A. Dickey. And R.A. Dickey was like kind of blah after 2012. And maybe uh, Stephen Wright is making me fall in love with him. I thought Dickey was less blah than Wakefield. I mean, I liked Wakefield, but Dickey's knuckleball was new and interesting. It was a completely different knuckleball well, to, from no, any other kind of knuckleball. Yeah, 2012 Dickey was, yeah. was great fun. Right, yes. Okay. Uh, but after that, less fun. I don't like watching yeah. catchers try to catch it either. I feel I feel sort of anxiety for them. Uh-huh. I don't yeah. know. Tomorrow morning I'll All wake right. up differently. Don't so, say, save your save your emails. Tomorrow morning I'll wake up different. It's, I don't have a strong opinion on this, <laughs> as one shouldn't. Okay. All right. So let's get to some emails. This is a question from James in Long Beach, who is a Patreon supporter. He says, while at an Angels game a couple weeks ago, my wife asked if I had a least favorite inning. 
I don't, and had never thought about it, but started speculating on the fly about which inning or innings might be the worst. And by worst, I suppose I mean least interesting. My first thought was that the least interesting might be the inning with the least offense, perhaps early innings when a pitcher is fresh and going through the order the first time or two, maybe the second or third, but of course that discounts the entertainment value of dominant pitching, which I suppose should be more common in the very early and late innings. Bottom line, two questions here. What metrics would you look at to determine which inning on average is the least interesting? I thought about looking at innings with the least overall change in win probability added, perhaps something else. What would you look at? And second, based on the stat or stats of your choice, which inning is statistically the least interesting? Put another way, if I'm looking for the optimal inning during which to grab a beer, what's my best bet? Yeah, I don't have a great way of answering this, but maybe reframing it a little bit, I I will. If you could only watch one inning of a single game and you don't know anything about that game, it's like this is pre-game. You have to pick your inning pre-game. What inning are you going to pick? Because there's a pretty good chance you're going to get a completely worthless inning if you get the ninth, right? Yeah. There's a pretty good chance that the ninth is going to be California's primary every time. Well, not every time, but a lot of the time. It just, yeah. it, it seems like it matters a lot more because it's way higher stakes, uh, way, way more, you know, like it's got 10, you know, it's 10% of the population. Uh, but of course, usually it's wrapped up or often, not usually, but often it's wrapped up by then. And so you might get stuck with total worthlessness, whereas the first inning is always good. In fact, the only, the, there is no way the first inning can't be pretty good. It's either going to be close at the end of it, or you're going to have seen uh, all the exciting parts of a game that will henceforth not be interesting. And you, uh, so I, so the first inning is, it seems to me that, wait, this question is asking the least favor, right? Yeah. First is the best. Hmm. I don't know about that. If I only had to choose one, then I think I would probably, I'd probably take the ninth just because although many times it will be completely uninteresting, Obviously, the highs are much higher than the first inning because, you know, you get the the save situation, the interesting inning where everything is at stake and one team wins and you get a dramatic ending or a a comeback. And so there's more potential for a great inning than you have in the first. First is fine. First is good. You get the good hitters coming up. You've got the starter in. Everything is new and fresh, but you never get the outcome. It's always just not knowing what comes next. So I would take the the inning that ends the game, even though often the ending is unsuspenseful. It is sometimes very suspenseful. Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good philosophy. I can't begrudge you that philosophy. Uh, you're gonna get higher highs for sure mm-hmm. uh, if you watch the last inning. Is there is there a plausible compromise inning? Is the, I mean the seventh is almost the ninth in, these days in terms of yeah. strategy. Like the tension when the setup guys come in is often quite high, and you can delude yourself much more into thinking that a four run game is close, uh, and you might get to see the starter still in doing his great starter things, and uh, if he's you know, striking out 16 or something, you might get to see the sort of more emotional later strikeouts. So mm-hmm. could see the seventh. The second is the worst. The second's a bad inning. And <laughs> and the fourth tends to, I think, be a bad inning. The fifth is okay because a lot of times you have a starting pitcher just trying to get over the line and uh, he'll be left in a bit longer to get beat up. And I think that there's, I think the fifth is a is a better offense inning. The fourth and the second are the ones where the pitcher is the most likely to be batting. So I would go. I'm going fourth. Fourth is the worst inning, and I'm <laughs> okay. taking and I'm taking seventh 
the eighth. I have a eighth feels nice though. I feel like the eighth feels like a good inning. I like setup men more than closers. I always have, you know. Uh-huh. I, you know, I always have. I'm telling you that now <laughs> yeah. for the first time. That's something people always say about Sam Miller, like setup men. I always liked Felix Rodriguez more than Rob Nen. I always liked Mike Jackson more than Rod Beck. I just like a good setup man. I liked Wade <laughs> Davis more when Greg Holland was there. And so I kind of like when the setup man is better than the closer. Me too. I right, <laughs> right, yeah, I do too. And so I I do like an eighth inning. And an eighth inning you know you're going to get both halves. Ninth inning you might only get half as much baseball. God, all right, so I'm saying fourth is the worst, eighth is the best. Okay, I think those are pretty good picks. I don't know if there's a single stat that would answer this question in a satisfactory way. But another thing in favor of the first inning is that it's a very high-scoring inning. I think it's the highest-scoring inning, so that's something if you want to see action. Mm-hmm. But, okay, well, this is sort of related. Jacob asks, what is the point of having a one-base runner leash? on a pitcher going into an inning. For instance, he's referring to a recent game. Bruce Bochy had that on Suarez in the seventh with a one-run lead. Suarez got Hanley out, but walked Jackie Bradley Jr. Jackie Bradley Jr. ended up scoring. To me, it's saying, okay, this pitcher is done, but I'll give him one more base runner. Seems like you're waiting for crap to hit the fan instead of trying to prevent base runners. I Bochy is the king of the one base runner leash, and uh-huh. I, I, he especially does it. The he, what's really frustrating is that he will let a pitcher bat with a one batter leash. Yeah, and <laughs> right. that's really infuriating. However, I like the one batter leash. To me, the one batter leash is a, it's a good it's a good leash. What, what I, I mean, because he like it, it's not like you're it, it. Sure, it looks annoying if he gives up a base runner on the first batter, but quite often he's not going to give up a base runner. Like, he's going to get a bunch of outs. He might get two innings for you. Well, I guess the problem with it is that maybe you just generally should make the move earlier. Oh, right. So it's just a way for for you to kind of string it along, and you have a guy who shouldn't really be in there if you were doing this optimally, but it's kind of hard to take him out just because, you know, he doesn't want to be taken out, that kind of thing. So it's just a way to you know, do the the less optimal tactic because it's easier and you don't have to burn as much social capital. You know, Ben, you and Jacob have convinced me, actually. <laughs> I, I think that I don't, yeah, I don't think I was really focusing enough on the word leash. If you have him on a one base runner leash, it implies ambivalence. And if you're ambivalent about the pitcher in the game, usually the bias is to keep a guy in, I think. Uh, too long. Right, so right. usually you should, yeah, I think you're right. Usually you should just do it. If you're, if your confidence in him is so fragile that you have put him on a one base runner leash, then yeah, I, I think you're right. I think I looked at this entirely the wrong way. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hey, can I just go back yeah. though? There's a middle ground though where we might call it a one batter base runner leash. And maybe even the manager thinks of it as a one base runner leash, but he doesn't really know that it's a one base runner leash until he sees that base runner. Sometimes you just, it's a tough call. You really don't know whether you're going to pull the guy or not, whether it's the right Mm -hmm. decision. I mean, a lot of moves in baseball are 50-50 or they're 60-40, but you have no way of knowing that they're 60-40. And so, you know, I'm just imagining a situation where, well, like, you know, I'm imagining a situation where we had Santos out there. And he's pitching well, but we also kind of think maybe it's time to pull him. And those two things are, that's like, those are competing, competing arguments. And one isn't necessarily right. And you don't know which one is right. You don't know, you don't know the exact moment that you should pull him. And so then when a guy gets on, you, you use that as data, right? 
It, mm-hmm. It's just, it's another data point. It's maybe it's easy to overreact to the one data point, uh, but all the same, you know, he's now he's going to be in the stretch, maybe through a bad pitch. Um, maybe the stakes are a little higher uh, all of a sudden, uh, and you were, you know, you were trying to ride him for an extra couple of batters, or you thought maybe mm-hmm. he was the best option. So I don't think that pulling a guy after he lets one base runner on necessarily means that it was that I'm opposed to that move. Maybe you just, yeah. maybe you know, right. well, in a sense, you should always have a one base, one batter leash. Like, yeah. Uh, if you if that if, if you pull him after ten, you see, right? If yeah. you pull him after ten base runners, then after nine base runners, he had a one base runner leash. <laughs> Yeah, from that right. point on. You're right. And so I have uh I think that we underestimate sometimes how much easier it is to make a decision when you're in the moment than when you're thinking about the theoretical of the moment. So I you know, sometimes I, I really do think you need to just sit there in the reality as it exists and make that move then. Uh and that you just can't really put yourself in the hypothetical. Uh, with quite the same degree of confidence, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not burying managers who pull a guy after one base runner. Uh, but I do agree that with the language that we use, um, you're right. The, you and Jacob are both right that it's probably overapplied. Yeah, because if you saw something that you didn't like, and that's why you have a one base runner leash, then maybe you should make that move before that one batter makes you pay. But if not, if the guy is cruising. But, you know, maybe the, the stats say that the optimal move would be to go to a reliever because it's the third time through the order or something. But, you know, whatever. He's your best starting pitcher and he's a leader in the clubhouse and he's been pitching really well and you don't see any danger signs. That's something that can get you into trouble. But even if a guy is cruising, once you get late enough in a game, he probably should have a one better leash if something bad happens against that batter if you see him lose velocity or drop his arm slot or he loses mechanics or something, then then he really had a one-base runner leash, in a mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. All right. So question from Eric. Let's say we discover that Mike Trout has a long-lost twin brother, Mitch Trout. Mitch is an identical twin, healthy and in world-class shape, but he was raised abroad and has never played a second of baseball. How much, if any, would a team post to bring Mitch in? <laughs> twin? He's a twin. He's an identical twin, and he has kept himself in shape. <laughs> Doing what? <laughs> Pole vaulting. I don't know. I mean, it would matter if he were... If he kept himself in shape by playing basketball, football, golf, and tennis, that would be different than if he kept himself in shape because he worked... Uh, you know, he was a lumberjack. He uh-huh. he worked... True. You know, he, he, he unloaded... Uh, he unloaded shipping containers at the dock. Like those are uh-huh. those. I feel like those are different kinds of muscles and different yeah. kinds of uh, skills. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so should we assume that he is a was he, uh, raised abroad? Should we assume that he played that he was a star uh, soccer and star soccer player in college? A he uh, was a uh, all regional uh, tennis player. In high school, but no cricket experience. <laughs> yeah, well, that does make a difference. You'd, I mean, he has Mike Trout's genes, so you would think that he would have been an athlete in, at some point. But who knows? Maybe he devotes himself to intellectual pursuits. But uh, I, I don't know. I guess let's let's not assume he's a, a high-level athlete. Maybe he's just not at a all. recreational 
sportsman. And are we? We're assuming he's twenty-four. Yeah, he's he's identical twin. So he's, yeah, but I mean, you know, this a question or two older or younger. Yeah, than I know, but maybe Eric. We could also look. <laughs> we're assuming this. We could also assume this email arrived three years ago. It's a lot <laughs> different answer if he's eighteen. If he's eighteen and you had the benefit of knowing what Mike Trout becomes, mm-hmm. I believe first round pick. If he's yeah, if yeah. he's if he's twenty four, I believe two hundred fifty thousand dollars to huh. to post. Really? Now I see. Hmm. So what would wonder what that would be as a draft slot? So uh, if, it's he, like if he were fifth or sixth round, I think. Yeah. So if if Mike Trout's identical twin suddenly becomes eligible for the draft at Mike Trout's age, you still think that teams would be taking fifth, sixth rounders ahead of him? He's 24, and he yeah. doesn't. He's never played baseball. No, that's <laughs> that's pretty hard to overcome. <laughs> if he were again, if he were 18, it's not the same thing. But you, you know, you've never you've never seen a baseball pitched, and you're already 24. You're yeah, you're you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at minimum, you're going to need. First of all, you you might never be able to. I mean, you'll never be able to catch up to other players who've been playing their whole lives, and maybe you missed some formative stage where you need to see pitches in order to recognize them and have a database of pitch types so that you can recognize what's coming. So, yeah, I mean, he can never catch up. Probably best-case scenario, he turns into someone like Bo Jackson or something who's just, like, incredibly athletic but very unrefined and not really a very well-rounded player and has lots of holes, but he's just so talented that he kind of gets by anyway. Yeah. And Bo Jackson, you know, had played baseball and so that helps him. And he got drafted when he was 20, actually 24. He was drafted when he was 24. Wow. Uh Uh, But on the other hand, Bo Jackson wasn't able to devote his, uh, his whole life to baseball after he was drafted. And Mitch Trout, uh, at the very least, would have a single-minded focus. Does the Michael Jordan precedent help us at all here? No, I don't think so. We didn't have a long enough time to see if Mike, if Michael Jordan um, or his twin brother Mitch Jordan got better. <laughs> we would need to see. Like I would, lo- I mean, if I could see a development curve for Michael Jordan, that'd be interesting to me. Well, but well, Michael Jordan was. I mean, he has points in his favor. He has points against him compared mm-hmm. to Mitch Trout. He was 31. That was his age 31 season in 1994. So much farther behind the eight ball than Mitch Trout. But he was Michael Jordan. So he was a world-class athlete in another sport. And he had played baseball before. I think high school. I think he played high school. Right. Um, Bo Jackson, he was he was actually drafted. Um, it was technically his age 23 season. He was born in November, drafted in June. So he was 23.7, as a prospect writer would, would put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, he almost went straight to the majors. He basically played 53 games in AA and then was in the majors that year. So they apparently <laughs> didn't think he needed much development. Yeah. Huh. If Mitch Trout is a free agent, I think he gets some... I think he gets some real money. I mean, say you're the Angels. Okay. You, you don't have a prospect, <laughs> which is which is the real Angels. They basically don't have a prospect. So suddenly you're signing Mike Trout, the, the franchise cornerstone. You're signing his twin brother. So A, it makes Mike Trout happy if, if Mitch Trout wants to do this. He's got his brother in the system now. And this would be the best reality show in sports. <laughs> this would be a great source of publicity, I think, because we would all be fascinated by how good this guy would be. So 
if you are a team that's not so good and you happen to have <laughs> Mike Trout and you have a terrible, terrible farm system, then why wouldn't you uh, pay a significant amount of money for Mr. Mitch Trout just to see what happens? At the worst worst case, it's good PR. It's You get some attention. You make Mike Trout happy. So I think even the Angels would pay for Mitch Trout. Now, they'd have to have some other bidder in order to have to pay him real money. But I think uh, I think teams would take a flyer on this guy. I don't know. I mean, uh, just such a low percentage of athletes are as gifted, you know, raw raw skills as Mike Trout, and such a low percentage of players you draft or sign pan out. So uh, I think I think my Mitch Trout gets a good deal of money. I'm trying to think of an actual number, but I think he gets something in the millions which is very imprecise. Your answer is way more fun than mine, and I just don't see it. I I mean, it's a skill game. Yeah, it is. I mean, he would probably be bad, but just on the off chance that, uh, I don't know. I I hope, uh, <laughs> you hope it happens. I hope it happens. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, all right. I guess we've answered that question sufficiently. Yeah. I don't know. We didn't actually answer it. I, I, think, I answered it. I think it. a team would pay... I, I answered it. You answered you did. it. We both answered it. Yeah. I think a team would pay $3 million for Mitch Trout. All right. All right. Uh, you next? Sure. All right. Uh, pretty quick one today. Somebody, a uh, friend of the show, I'm sorry, I forget who, uh, pointed out to me that uh, the Mariners, Deho Lee, uh, had a, a fun little accomplishment going. He had... 10 home runs in 120 or so at-bats, which is big-time power. Good season, good hitter, good signing. Zero doubles. Uh, <laughs> 10 homers, zero doubles, and also zero triples. Uh, he has since doubled, but I got to wondering about whether Deho Lee's season has any historical potential. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to see what the highest percentage of extra base hits any player's home runs made up. Uh, uh-huh. In a season and career, so they there are basically two all timers in this stat, uh, and they um, without anybody knowing about it, um, one of them was kind of chasing the other one for his whole career. And depending on how you feel about it, maybe he passed him, maybe he didn't. But the all timer for a single season, let me just say, there are six players with a minimum of ten home runs in a season who had at least eighty percent of their extra base hits go for four bags, 80%. So Deoli is um, well ahead of that. In fact, Deoli is currently second all-time in total percentage. He's one of only two players with 90% of his extra base hits going for homers. Can I just pause, though, before I give you some names? Mm-hmm. Good or bad thing? If I tell you a player <laughs> has hit a ton of home runs and zero doubles, yeah. does that do you go, ooh, or, <laughs> or is that a bad thing? Well, there's that thing that people always say about young players, like, he's got doubles power, but some of those doubles are going to turn into homers. And in this case, it's like all of them turned into homers, which sounds good on the surface, but it kind of means you're an all or nothing hitter, basically. And so it's hard to be really good, so I think, if can you're an I all just, or nothing hitter. Can I just give you the extremely simple counter argument, though? Uh-huh. A home run is better than a double. So if you're hitting home runs instead of doubles, you're better than the guy who hit a double. Yeah. 
It's a rally killer, though. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, yeah, I think I'm trying to think if it would be correlated with something bad. Like you'd you'd have to have a crazy strikeout rate or something in order, because you're you're a, an all uppercut swing and yeah. you're just going for homers and you're selling out for power. That, that kind of thing mm-hmm. could be associated with this profile. Certainly lack of speed would be associated with this profile. Yeah, that too. And mm-hmm. probably lack of overall athleticism. Right. Um, so there are six guys before Dehali who uh, had 80% of their extra base hits go for homers. Eddie Robinson is the champion uh, by percentage. He had 16 homers and one double one year. Uh, nobody's had uh-huh. a perfect season with at least 10 homers, but Eddie Robinson came the closest. 16 homers, one double. Uh, our old friend Art Shamsky is on this list. Mm. Uh, he had yeah. tw- 21 homers and five doubles. But then the the two at the top, the highest percentage of homers, uh, make uh, the highest percentage of extra I'm going to need to figure out a shorter way to say this. It's too wordy. But the highest was Mark McGuire uh, for minimum of 20 homers. Was Mark McGuire, 29 homers and four doubles. And yeah. that was in that year where he couldn't run, like, at right. all. And, like, there were games where Tony La Russa was batting him, like, leadoff or something. I don't remember. He was doing weird things with him just to get him in at bat because he couldn't even stand in the field. Uh-huh. So 29 homers and four doubles. But going, the only other player who clears the 80% threshold with more than 29 homers was Harmon Killebrew, who in Mm. 1964, at age 28, had 49 homers and 11 doubles. Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. He did have one triple, but otherwise, 49 homers and 11 doubles. So Killebrew and McGuire are the two career champions at this too really and Killebrew had 573 homers and 290 doubles these guys were over 80 percent for a single season but for a career to get a list of seven you need to drop it down to 60 percent so Killebrew is on the list of over 60 percent but Mark McGuire is the only person on the list with over 65 percent he had 583 homers and only 250 doubles in fact McGuire had 10 more homers than Harmon Killebrew, and Harmon Killebrew had 46 more extra base hits than McGuire. So he really, in a sense, McGuire blows away even Killebrew, who was a legend in this unknown field. Um, however, if you do one, uh, even one slightly different way of looking at it, if you look at seasons with over, I think, 70% home runs, uh, Killebrew had 14 seasons edging out McGuire for 13. So I don't think we need to say that there is definitely a, a, a champion of this. They're both all-timers. But if uh, Deoli, Deoli is uh, in a good position, he's already cleared my 10, uh, but it seems pretty unlikely. This feels more like fluke than something that a lot of players have accomplished. The other career guys, uh, over 60%, Dave Kingman, Cecil Fielder, Jim Gentile, Ron Kittle, and Ken uh, Phelps. And Killebrew, strangely, was not like this in the minors at all. He had more doubles than homers in his first year in the minors, more doubles than homers in his second year, more doubles than homers in his third year, and he actually had 16 triples in those three years as well, less than three years uh, as well. Uh, so, uh, But then as soon as he got to the majors, his first year in the majors, 42 homers, 20 doubles. 31 homers, 19 doubles, 46 homers, 20 doubles, 48 homers, 21 doubles, 45 homers, 18 doubles, and then the at age 28, the all-time season, 49 homers, 11 doubles, one triple, probably the most lopsided homer season of all time. Yeah. All right. Well, McGuire, Kilbrew, pretty good hitters. Exactly. Dave Lee, pretty good hitter so far, too. The thing is, though, that McGuire, even before 
before the steroids stuff or maybe after but alongside it a lot of people have said oh he's not a, he's not a hall of famer anyway uh he was one dimensional right and uh, uh Harmon Killebrew uh walked in he got in in his fourth season uh-huh so hmm. pretty much the same player yeah even if you adjust for era and the fact that Maguire was playing in a high offense one he was a better hitter than Killebrew yeah, Maguire also, by the way, is the highest percentage of all hits as a home run by by quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing is that if, uh, like, in the top 20 for that is Barry Bonds, and Barry Bonds has, like, more than double the home runs, uh, uh, more than double the doubles of Maguire, 10 times the triples of Maguire. Barry Bonds just hit so many home runs. That's how he got on the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. You can use the coupon code BP. Get the discounted price of $30 when you sign up for the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. All right, very related question from Ben in San Francisco, who says, I was pondering the value of a hitter like Jock Peterson, who tends to hit for low average but is capable of posting a high OPS when he's drawing lots of walks. I was then reminded of Ichiro's assertion back in the day. If I'm allowed to hit 220, I could probably hit 40 home runs, but nobody wants that. My question is, if there were no stigma to batting 220 in Ichiro's prime, would he have been more or less productive if he had molded himself as a power hitter? So often we have talked about whether Ichiro actually could have done this if he'd wanted to, so let's say that he could. Would he have been better or worse if he had switched to that profile? I'm curious to know if Ichiro had wanted to walk. Yes, that's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, so because you're basically describing Adam Dunn, except that... Adam Dunn walked a ton. Adam Dunn without walking a ton wouldn't have been a very good player, really. Yeah, well, Adam Dunn, but also with all the stolen bases and also with the much better defense. Yes, right. Well, yeah, of course, he's going to have the defense no matter what. Now, if he's a 220 hitter, obviously, he's not using his speed so much. So it hurts Ichiro more than it would some guy who could, you know, hit 350 but wasn't a great base dealer. So... Ichiro's hitting 353 right now, by the way. It's going to, seriously, they're going to have to start, like, it's going to get close. He's going to have to struggle to get to 502, and he's yeah. going to be leading the league in batting average. I, I warned you, Ben. <laughs> so, wait, have you done the simple math and simply, like, just like adding and subtracting yeah, who's total got a bases better, or something? Yeah, like, who's got a better, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I haven't. So, let's see. I, I'll tell you, Ichiro Suzuki's true average. Now, the problem is that his base running, He'd have fewer opportunities for good base running if he yep. weren't. So space running might drop a little if you. But his true average in his career is 275. And at his peak, it was only 300-ish. So that, I mean, you could certainly do a lot better than a 300 true average if you're hitting 40 home runs. And I'm not sure how many guys hit 40 home runs with a worse true average. Uh, with a, yeah. With a worse true average, although back then, <laughs> back then it was easier. But Dunn's true averages, 310, 290, 280, 320, 304. All in all, Dunn was a more valuable hitter if all of the assumptions of true average are accurate. And I have no reason to doubt that they are. Uh, so yes, if uh, although Dunn didn't hit 220, he hit 260, 250, 220, 260, 250, 230, 260, right. 240, 230. So, you know, 230 would make and true average worse. is not doesn't count base running, right? So... Oh no! Right, I mean Ichiro would yeah. still he would he would still have to be base run if he lost his base running and his defense along with this trade that would not yeah. be a good well, trade off. Yeah, no reason to think he'd lose the defense. No, 
so I'm going to say yes. Uh, if Ichiro could really have hit 220 with 40 home runs, he would have been a better hitter. I think that's probably right. Has anybody if, ever hit 220 with 40 home runs and not drawn walks? Yeah, right, because if you're a 40 home run hitter, <laughs> pitchers are afraid to throw you strikes, and so you really have to be unselective. Like, who was that guy? Who was Okay, so Fernando I mean, Tatis, for instance. Uh-huh. Eh, he drew 80. Eh, uh, that doesn't really work. Uh, he never hit 30. Wasn't it Tony Bautista? Didn't Tony Bautista I mean, fit this profile? Dave Kingman was not a big walker. I guess in some seasons he was, but lifetime he had about the same walk rate as Itro, not too much higher. All right, so Tony Bautista, 2,000, 41 homers, 260 batting average, 35 walks. Okay, uh-huh. that's as close as we're going to get. That's, you know, his batting average is higher, but that's as close as we're going to get. And it's the same era. And his true average was 268, uh-huh. which is quite poor. Yeah. So, I mean, if each if he weren't drawing a lot more walks, then you're talking about a guy with a 270, 280 on base percentage, aren't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that would be worse. He would not be a 290 true average if he had a 270 on base percentage. There's no way. Even if it was a 290 on base percentage, mm-hmm. I think no way. It would have to come with walks. I assume it would come with walks. But if it didn't come with walks, if it came with walks, the answer is yes. If it didn't, the answer is no. Yes. Simple as I it agree. gets. It's as simple right. as it gets, Ben. I agree. And I I would guess that Ichiro has the ability to walk more. If he, if he has the ability to hit 40 home runs, then you would think he'd be really changing his game just overall at the plate. And he wouldn't be swinging at as many pitches as he does because he'd be looking for power. And he wouldn't be trying to just slap hits here and there and it hardly even matters where the pitch is when he throws just slapping something somewhere so he'd be looking for pitches in the strike zone and he'd be letting other pitches go by and so there's no reason to think that he wouldn't be walking more unless you think he is just wired in such a way that he would not be able to help himself so i agree what about uh like like i guess dave kim dave kingman's age 27 season he hit 37 home runs, hit 238, and only walked 28 times. Mm, that's about right. But that's 1976, so I guess, you know, 37 home runs then meant more. So that's a 302 true average. Well, yeah, it's a 129 OPS plus 793. So, yeah, that's uh, that's way. Yeah, that's a very different environment. Mm-hmm. So it probably drops down a little. I don't know. Yeah. 270, 280, maybe. Uh-huh. Anyway, he needs the walks. Yeah, right. And that allows him to use his speed also. All right. So that is it for today. Got some other good questions here. I will star them for next time. Keep the questions coming to podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Or if you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through that site. Speaking of which, please become a Patreon supporter. Go to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have done so already. Shane Allen, Hayden Kane, Dustin Palmatier, Steve Descala and Andrew Cardamone. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Go to theonlyruleisithastowork.com to find out more, read excerpts, interviews, reviews, check out stats and photos and videos. If you like it, leave us a review at Amazon and Goodreads. Helps us out. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. We will be back with another episode tomorrow. Goodbye.
behalf of the group and ourselves, I hope we pass the audition. <laughs>